When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation, Love Me, Don't Leave Me, Addressing Abandonment Fears. This is based in part on the book, Love Me, Don't Leave Me, Go Figure, by Michelle Skeen. Um, now, obviously, you don't have to have the book in order to, to go through this class, but if you want more um, activities, I would suggest looking that book up. You might be able to find it at your library, too. So over the course of the next hour, we're going to talk about how to help clients increase awareness of their story, including beliefs about and behavioral reactions to triggers that uh, things that trigger their fear of abandonment. We're going to help them learn about fear of abandonment. Most clients don't really realize what it is. They know that their relationships aren't all that healthy, but they're not exactly sure what's going on. We'll help them explore the concept of schemas or core beliefs about relationships and abandonment and themselves and examine common traps in thinking, reacting, and just generally relating in relationships. Then we'll start talking about learning the necessary skills to accept your past as part of your story and acknowledging that their past does not have to continue to negatively impact them in the present. Maybe they were abandoned in the past. You know, it happens. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that every relationship henceforth and evermore is going to do that, nor does it have to negatively impact them. Yes, there's something there that they're going to have to deal with, grieve, whatever. Um, but we can talk about how to integrate that into their life narrative. Connection is a basic human need. We are not meant to be hermits. There are very few people who truly want to be left alone from all human existence all the time. As infants and children, survival was dependent upon the relationship with the primary caregiver. And we know from Linehan's work that if you have a child who is um, tends to get emotionally dysregulated, parents may not know how to deal with that. Um, Dr. Sears um, actually talked about the child as being one uh, who was high in emotionality or a high needs child. Children are different. And if parents don't know how to respond, the child may interpret it as rejection. Um, likewise, sometimes parents just aren't able to be emotionally present and available when the child is younger. And the child often will take that personally because children think very egocentrically and very dichotomously. 
People's beliefs about other people in relationships was formed largely based on their interactions with their caregivers. So if that first relationship really bombed, then future relationships after that are probably going to be tenuous at best unless there's an intervention somewhere. This is important because healthy relationships serve as a buffer against stress for most all people. We want to help people address beliefs that formed as a result of these relationships so they can create new understandings of these events. So, for example, um, y'all know I worked in, in co-occurring and addictions treatment for many, many years. And a lot of people will come in and they will talk about how one or both of their parents abandoned them. They just left. They chose the drugs over them. They did other things that seemed to prioritize other things over them, the child. And we'll look at that in terms of was that a rejection of you or could the parent not do any better at that point in time? Now, a child can't think that abstractly and go, oh, yeah, well, mom just can't handle it right now. So I get it. You know, children are going to take it personally. But as an adult, they can look back and think more abstractly about what are some other possibilities aside from me just being completely unlovable and worthless and everybody being untrustworthy. We want to help people better understand themselves and their reactions in relationships because they may be in a relationship and it's going along then all of a sudden they get start getting really clingy or the minute they get into a relationship they start having anxiety and get super super clingy and they're always afraid that that person's not going to come back or they're playing um, scenarios in their head whenever they're not together about what horrible things might happen that would cause them to be abandoned. By doing this and making them aware, we're helping them make more conscious, healthy decisions in their current relationships. And, you know, once they understand their triggers and they understand their behavioral reactions and their emotional reactions, then they're going to be better able to implement distress tolerance skills. In childhood, survival depends on caregivers. And fear of abandonment is a natural survival response. A, a two-year-old cannot make their own breakfast and change their own diapers and pay the bills. It, it just doesn't happen. So if a two-year-old doesn't have somebody to rely on, somebody to comfort them, um, it, it's a big deal. Think about in the wild. You know, I know we're not animals, but just go with me on this. In most cases, except for the little turtles, which is so sad, but in most cases, the parent, usually the mother, takes care of the child until it's old enough and it's learned the skills to go out and join its own pride or do whatever it needs to do. Um, so it's important to look at the survival nature or the survival function of cohesive relationships and how abandonment fears can really disrupt this. Meeting biological needs and safety are key triggers for anxiety at any age. So even if this happens when somebody's older, if they fear that their parent abandoned them, um, it, it is going to have an impact on them. When focused on survival, people can't focus elsewhere. So if they're worried about who's going to help them get through this next hurdle, who's going to feed them, who's going to do this, who's going to do that. Think about Maslow's pyramid or triangle. Um, if that bottom level, if that foundation of biological needs is not getting met, you're not going to be focusing on developing a strong self-esteem. You're focusing on who's going to take care of me. Every stressful situation becomes a crisis in the insecurely attached child because they're afraid that 
mom or dad is not going to come back or is not going to be there for them. In infancy or early childhood, if caregivers were away for long periods of time, and this doesn't necessarily mean a caregiver that just packed up and left. It can mean people who have children, uh, who have parents who traveled for work. They were in the military. Um, they may have made the choice to get up and leave. They may have passed away, or they may be in jail. There's a whole lot of reasons caregivers can disappear. But in a child's mind, that interpretation of what happened to mom or dad, what did I do to make this happen, why, what could I have done to make this not happen, um, or why is my, my parent choosing this over spending time with me, in a child's mind, that's kind of hard to rectify without taking it personally. Another way that children are abandoned in infancy and early childhood is a parent who's inconsistently or unpredictably physically or emotionally present. So if you've got a parent who struggles with mental, mental illness, if you have a parent who struggles with addiction, or a parent who's just ill-equipped to deal with the child and is just like, I, I don't know what to do with this little thing, um, the child can get the impression that they are too much to handle that they are unlovable, that they are somehow broken. In later childhood, they may experience abandonment by feeling like they're a poor family fit or the black sheep. And I think a lot of us have worked with people who've self-reported that they were always the black sheep of the family. That's rejection. That's feeling like they've been abandoned or rejected by their family. Trauma that ruptures the relationship with the primary caregiver. So if the primary caregiver is abusive, or if the primary caregiver covers up for someone who's abusive, it could be, um, it could create an abandonment experience because, again, it comes back to primary caregiver, mom, dad, grandma, whoever it is, chose this over me. So what are the reactions? Well, fight or flight. If there's a fear of abandonment and we believe that abandonment is, um, or that relationships are necessary for survival, then abandonment is going to trigger the fight or flight reaction is like, I, I need people around. I need some help here. So what happens? Some people get angry towards someone who's unavailable, angry at them for going to jail, angry at them for choosing drugs, angry at them for overdosing. Um, they may feel sad or helpless when somebody goes away. And we all know the whole grief thing. They may feel a lot of these things, not just one of them. But we want to help them identify how they feel now when they think about that person. And then we might talk about how they felt back then in the situation. Shame and self-anger about feeling needy. Um, because a lot of times people are told, you just need to suck it up. You're too needy. You need to, you know, stand up on your own two feet. And they have a lot of fear. Because if their support system goes away, if the people that they need in their life go away, then who's going to be there? So they have fears of rejection and isolation. If, if I'm all alone, who's going to be there to help me? Who can I form a relationship with? Loss of control and the unknown. Well, we know uh, for most, most of us would be comfortable saying one of the few things in, the, in life that you can't control is another person. You can suggest, you can prod, you can cajole, but you can't control another person. Um, and you could argue that point with you know, behavior modification and stuff. But in general, people have the ability to make choices and failure. Um, a, a person who fears abandonment is always going to want to be, well, 
can always strive to be perfect to avoid failure and avoid rejection which is leads to abandonment or on the other hand they may just throw up their hands and say screw it i am not lovable i'm going to fail at whatever i do so why should i even try why is it worth the effort so how do we help clients well we want to start asking them when you were a child what caused these fears you know think back to when you felt this way as a child what relationships was this um and and what was going on and how were these fears reasonable or helpful we know we don't do things unless there is some sort of benefit to it a survival benefit maybe so what part of this is helping clients understand that okay back then with the skills and tools you had and the knowledge you had about what was going on you know you were afraid that somebody was going to go away you were afraid that nobody would come back for you of course that was self preservation all right so what causes these fears now and how is it unhelpful because a lot of times we're working with much older clients who are able to feed themselves they're able to pay their own bills they don't necessarily need they want but they don't necessarily need the approval of certain people so we want to look at when these fears are triggered how does it affect your life and is it helpful or unhelpful to you based on their temperament children need different types and amounts of caregiver inter interaction and you know if you've had children or if you grew up in a big family you can kind of think about this and identify some of them wide open and easily overstimulated my son was like this he still is to this day when he's awake he is 110 miles an hour and you know he is just on but when he stops he kind of crashes and he's out um the energizer bunny isn't as overstimulated and as wide open it's just more consistent my daughter was like this she didn't nap as a child i mean it was like pulling teeth to get her to nap she was just when she woke up she was um awake and she was steady throughout the day the introvert child maybe one or both of these or neither the introvert child often is content playing by themselves it's not that they're antisocial they are just comfortable playing by themselves in their imaginary world the extrovert on the other hand tends to need other people to play with them which you know can get somewhat draining especially if the parent isn't prepared to do that um so looking at, at different children and what is it that they're needing and why are they needing it are they needing it um developmentally interpersonally are they needing some sort of interaction a lot of extrovert children if they have other children to play with they're perfectly fine um it's just they need the parental um interaction more if they are at home by themselves and they want somebody to play with if abandonment fears are triggered early in childhood you know it can be addressed it's not like it's too late it's not like the ship has sailed we can look back and go you know maybe your caregivers didn't have the information that they needed maybe they didn't have the skills that they needed let's look at what it was like growing up if they want to go back there or we can look at it now and say okay what is it that you need in a relationship and what's your temperament like you know do you need time alone do you need more interaction people who need more interaction people who are more extroverted um tend to struggle more with abandonment fears because they derive so much energy from the interaction with other people 
Based on their needs and caregivers' reactions to their needs, children form schemas or core beliefs about the world and others. So if your child is always coming to you um, wanting to play and you're always telling them, go play by yourself, you know, I'm too tired, I got this to do, I got that to do, what message does that send? I'm going to choose mopping the floor over playing with you. You're boring. You're not fun to be around. Um, and children get their feelings hurt. They don't understand why you don't want to play with them, you know, and you may have a very good reason. But children get their feelings hurt, and in their all-or-none thinking, they're like, I'm not any fun to be around. So talking about children under seven, they think dichotomously. So it's all or nothing. You either love me or you hate me. Um, you either have fun playing with me or you don't. They're egocentric. So everything that happens, if you leave, they had something to do with it. It's their fault. Um, now, on the other hand, if things go well, they may take that personally too. So score for that. But um, combining all or none thinking with taking things personally, you know, that's the way children think. But those are two of your most co common cognitive distortions that we address in cognitive behavioral therapy. So we want people to start moving out of this method of thinking um, as, they, as they develop. But under seven, they can't. You know, we can help them. We can kind of try, try to draw pictures. But cognitively, they may not be able to grasp the nuances. They also, at this age, can only focus on one aspect at a time. So if you say, well, you know, mom had a lot going on. She, you know, was depressed. She was addicted to drugs. She had this, you know, impending warrant for her and yada, yada. So she decided it would be better for her to leave. The child's just going to be standing, standing there looking at you like, what in the world are you talking about? I'm, a seven-year-old's not going to get that. And they can only focus on one aspect, which is, I am here. Mommy is not. What happened? What did I do? Um, and children cannot think abstractly or consider other possible options. Like, you know, the, if the child thinks that their parent abandoned them because they were bad, trying to help them see that, you know, maybe if you, if you understand that mommy's sick right now. Older children are probably going to get that. Younger children can repeat it, but it may be harder for them to actually internalize that it wasn't them that made mommy leave or daddy. A broad way of perceiving things based on memories, feelings, and thoughts is basically how we define a schema. And I've tried to find different terms for schema, um, and there just really aren't any. So we try to talk about um, and def really define what that means in, when I work with clients on, on abandonment fears. Schemas that trigger abandonment fears center around themselves and their whether they accept or reject themselves, whether they feel that they're lovable or not, whether they feel competent or not, and how they are able to adapt or tolerate the loss of control, you know, drop back and punt, if you will. Now, these are really self-esteem sort of things that we can work on with clients because abandonment fears, you know, think about healthy relationships. Most of the time, you're not going to have a healthy relationship if you've got somebody with a self-esteem that's in the crapper. So we want to help people start to identify how they are acceptable, lovable, competent, and ways to tolerate loss of control if their significant other doesn't text them back for an hour or two hours or maybe doesn't text them back at all because they miss the message. Um, 
you know, helping them tolerate that so they don't immediately go into a tailspin when they don't get that instant return text. What can they do? Helping them develop those skills. Other schemas center around the relationship of self to others. And do other people think I'm acceptable, lovable? And can I tolerate the unknown in my relationship with other people? How much can I tolerate? Because in the past, when things have gotten a little wonky, they've gone south. And, you know, maybe that is every time in the past, or maybe that is sometimes in the past. So we're going to want to look at those thoughts using the challenging questions worksheet is what I usually use. Um, and if you want to look that up online, it's part of cognitive processing therapy. The challenging questions worksheet, you can just Google it. It comes up easy peasy. Um, and I will also put a copy of that in your, uh, in the classroom and in the resources section, but I digress. We can help people start looking at how these schemas formed and they're probably still maintained by ecocentric all or nothing thinking so we're going to start addressing those cognitive distortions early on so let's talk real quick about attachment styles now the emotionally available caregiver the child seeks the caregiver for comfort the child is upset when the caregiver leaves especially in new situations well most of us would look at that and observe that behavior and go yeah that's totally normal and the child's happy when the caregiver returns in this sort of situation the child learns to trust that others will be responsive. They're not just going to be left there to cry because theoretically, you know, uh, when my son started preschool, uh, I took him in the first day and I dropped him off and he cried and I got out of sight and I cried. And, <laughs> you know, his teacher was wonderful. I felt great about this school. I came back to pick him up. He was all smiles. It was a great day. Because he knew that I had left him, or he learned, that I had left him in a safe place and, you know, everything was fine and I came back. P took him the next day and I dropped him off. And he grabbed Miss Jessica's hand and he looks at me and he goes, bye-bye, Mommy. Not a tear in sight. I cried again. Not until he was out of sight. But <laughs> when we have children who are securely attached and they figure out that it's a safe environment and that you're coming back, it helps them tolerate when you are out of sight, when important people are out of sight. Now, whether that means they're out of visual sight or you can't contact them on the, on the phone or text messages or Facebook, we are way too connected these days. Um, but people can go, oh, oh my gosh, back before cell phones, you could go an entire day without talking to somebody and you didn't get freaked out. Today, if you go more than two hours, it seems like people start getting freaked out. So we want to have people start looking at perspective. But when this situation happens, children learn to trust that others are going to be responsive to their needs. They'll learn to be self-reliant and try things so they can deal when things get a little bit out of control. They're like, okay, I got this. If they fail, they know they can return to home base. They can go back and they're going to be accepted because they're loved for who they are, not whether they succeeded or failed. They learn to adapt to a variety of situations. They can deal with stress and have an accurate expectation of other people. Now, these are all things that we want to help our clients work toward. This is the ideal that we're working. Now, other attachment styles create the more abandonment fears, and we're looking at a rejection, rejecting or harsh caregiver creates an avoidant child. Well, think about it. 
if every time you asked for something or you needed something, you were pushed away, you were rejected, you were told to go play by yourself, go to your room, you wouldn't depend on your caregiver for security because when you're asking for help, you're basically getting your hand slapped. Shows little response when caregiver leaves or returns. Well, if you're not depending on, on them for security, then why do you really care if they come or go, except for maybe they feed you pretty well? Learns not to depend on the caregiver for comfort, connection, or security. So this caregiver is, for whatever reason, not emotionally able to connect with that child. They are distancing themselves and kind of pushing the child away because they can't take the input. The ambivalent parent or the ambivalent attachment style is created by an inconsistent or chaotic caregiver. So the child always walks on eggshells. This is true if the parent has an addiction, has borderline personality disorder, or even has recurrent episodes of anxiety or depression. The um, child may not be able to read cues and figure out what's going on. Remember, they don't understand all those things that I just rattled off. So some days, caregiver will be totally present, and it's awesome. And then other days, it's Jekyll Hyde. So the child is anxious and afraid to try or explore because they're afraid if they fall down, nobody's going to be able to help them up. The child is clingy and demanding, trying to elicit a response because negative attention is better than no attention. So if you've got a parent who is withdrawn at a particular point, if it's a bad day, the child may um, become more demonstrative about their needs. They may become more fussy. They may throw more temper tantrums. To get some sort of a response to know that that caregiver is going to help them out or protect them at some point. It's like, what does it take to get your attention? When the caregiver leaves, the child is upset because, you know, there are some good days. But it's also inconsolable when the child returns, when the caregiver returns. So the parent returns and they're like, okay, here we go again. So there's never any break. The child is just on this constant sort of teeter-totter thing so core abandonment abandonment beliefs that form around some of these rejecting relationships or unavailable relationships all people leave now this is one again like i said sometimes the abandonment happens because of the parents work or the caregivers work um, because they're in the military and that's something that you can deal with it's not going to damn a person to having abandonment fears and low self-esteem and everything it is possible to handle this in early childhood and people to come through with flying colors we're talking about adults who didn't have good early interventions so for whatever reason if they felt like they were abandoned they create the schema that all people leave the important people the ones that were really supposed to be there they left so why should i expect anybody else to be different mistrust People will hurt, reject, take advantage of me, or just not be there when I need them. Now, we can all think of times in our life when this has happened. You know, it's, it's part of growing up. It's part of life. But, again, when it happens, especially from a primary caregiver or someone who is super important in your life, when we're talking later on when the person starts, when, when the person's older, then they might start developing these thoughts that, you know what, nobody's safe. If they start getting into a bunch of bad relationships and every relationship ends in, in disaster, they may start changing their perception of their lovability and of 
whether it's, it's safe to be in relationships. Emotional deprivation. I don't get the love I need. Nobody understands me, cares about me, or even tries to meet my needs. You see this a lot more in people who tend to get emotionally dysregulated because their dysregulation is so disproportional to what the average person does. And it takes them so much longer to return to baseline that people often don't understand what's going on or know how to deal with it. So they don't understand that the person's doing the best they can, which is where distress tolerance skills and vulnerability prevention and all that stuff, the DBT skills come in so handy to help the person, but they can also educate the people in their life that are important. Defectiveness. If people knew me, they would reject me. Look at the past relationships. People got to know me, they rejected me. So we're going to want to address that. And failure. I don't measure up. I'm not able to succeed. I've tried to get in relationships. I've tried to be lovable and every relationship has ended. So you really want to focus on the all-or-nothing language and the egocentric parts of it. I don't do this. I don't measure up. Well, what else might have been going on in that situation that caused the failure? Was it you or was it a variety of things in this situation? So we're going to talk about these some more. Fight. What are some of your unhelpful reactions? Well, the first one is often that fight reaction. You don't want to leave me because... So I am going to try to get power and make you stay. Aggression, hostility, blaming, criticizing. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, for somebody who is afraid of abandonment, why in the world are they being so aggressive and nasty? Because, of course, people wouldn't want to stick around for that. Well, logic kind of goes out the door when people are acting in their emotional mind. So we want to look at what is the benefit or what is the hoped-for goal of the ag aggression, hostility, blaming, and criticizing. Well, if I don't feel good about me, and if I don't feel love-worthy, then I'm going to want to make sure that I'm holding on tight to you and maybe pushing you down a couple pegs so you don't feel like you're too good to leave me. Dominance or trying to control others. Recognition-seeking to get attention, validation, or approval. So I'm going to fight to stay in this relationship by trying to prove to you that I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and, gosh darn it, you should like me. Manipulation and exploitation, so seduction, lying, and justifying. Now, it's kind of odd, you might say, to have this under fight, but think about it. These are proactive, somewhat aggressive, energy-intensive ways of trying to keep the relationship together. I'm not fleeing from the relationship. I'm not cutting my ties. I'm doing whatever I can to fight this thing from disintegrating. Making excuses for others' inappropriate behavior. Well, you know... Probably that's, that may have been one way, one thing they did when they grew up. And clinging and chasing. You know, if I keep texting you, maybe you'll change your mind. If I keep calling you, maybe you'll change your mind. Um, so while in retrospect, or if you step out of it, you can see where these are probably not the best ways to keep a relationship. In the moment, think about the person who is just terrified of someone leaving. And they're going, come back, come back, come back. You've got to come back. I'll make you come back. The other unhelpful reaction is flight. I don't care if you leave. So they withdraw, and they may withdraw physically, emotionally, and even engage in some addictive behaviors to numb feelings, or they don't get emotionally involved at all. They're just emotionally numb and distant. They're just like, I, I don't do that feeling thing. I don't catch feelings. And distraction. 
so they might engage in other things so they don't have to focus on the relationship but they don't want to get into it they're not going to get emotionally invested so questions for clients about their core beliefs this is where we get into the useful stuff i guess the first one all people leave well you know i would question that um so my first question to my client is what does it look like to be available to not leave um, or to not abandon so tell me about relationships you've been in when you have not abandoned the relationship and what would it look like in a new relationship to not be abandoned and then we move on to who in your past left you or was unavailable physically or emotionally and what did they do to make you feel rejected or abandoned and this is an important question because it's going to help us start to identify some of those triggers in current relationships that cre start creating the abandonment anxiety so maybe when the um, caregiver we'll just stay with that when the caregiver started to spiral into a major depressive episode they withdrew and they became sullen and didn't interact much so if they have a significant other in the present who withdraws some maybe they've just had a really stressful week and they're like you know what i just i need i need the night so i'm not going to come over to your place tonight that can trigger that abandonment fear because all of a sudden that person's withdrawing some not a lot they're just taking some healthy space but in the mind of you know the, the five or six year old that experienced this from their caregiver that's triggered again in the present so what did they do what happened that made you feel this way so we can start looking at this and developing alternate explanations and examining whether it's true in the present with the current relationship or relationships i want to identify exceptions by identifying who in your past has been available to you emotionally and or physically um, and who in your present is available to you emotionally who is your support system who do you have now that you might be able to call on and these may not be super healthy relationships right now but most people have a couple relationships they go you know what this person is not so bad it's not the greatest relationship but you know what do you do in your current relationships that causes people to leave and you have to you know walk this one kind of carefully but we really do want to look at you know some of those behaviors we were just talking about the aggression hostility dominance recognition seeking manipulation yada yada so what things do you do in your current relationships that seem to push people away what is their function you know what are you trying to do so start helping them understand why they're doing these behaviors and what are the alternatives what can you do differently and we do want to address the clinging because this is true in a lot of people with abandonment fears there is some clingy pseudo stalkerish behavior that may happen i'm not saying it always does but it can so if they tend to be clingy or if they freak out if they don't get a text back right away in what ways are they clingy in relationships and how can they deal with the distress that happens when there is separation instead of you know texting somebody 45 times or something um do i think abandonment issues are a cause for the development of borderline personality disorder um and i would have to say there is definitely a significant correlation between abandonment issues because in borderline personality disorder you have a parent who is relatively emotionally unavailable turns on the dime 
has an unstable self-image. So there's a lot of chaos that the child is dealing with. And, you know, in borderline personality, we've got that dichotomous thinking, that all or nothing, I love you, I hate you. Well, that's getting communicated to the child. And the child can't go, ah, mom's just having a bad day today. If it's one of those I hate you days, the child's like, oh, that hurts really bad. So, yes, could this develop from... BPD, I would not be surprised at all um, if parents with BPD produced children who had at least some abandonment fears. Now, does that mean everybody who has abandonment issues came from a parent with BPD characteristics? No. Um, but yes, I think it would be a good uh, uh, correlation to make. So thank you for the question. Mistrust. People will hurt, reject, take advantage of me, or just not be there when I need them. Like I said, I think most of us have experienced this in relationships and just in life. Um, now, does that mean that everybody does? No. So we want to address the, and what, the unspoken all right here. All people will hurt, reject, or take advantage of me. So what does it look like when someone is trustworthy and safe? And a lot of times it takes some thinking, but they can think back to somebody in their life who has been, whether it was a pastor, a teacher, an auntie, a grandma, somebody. Who in your past was untrustworthy or unsafe? And what did they do that taught you that people were untrustworthy or dangerous? Um, So again, we're looking at triggers. We're trying to identify those triggers so we can say, all right, when that happens in the present, or when you think that's starting to happen in the present, what can you do to kind of get grounded and go different time, different place, different person? And what are some alternate explanations? Because, you know, maybe whatever happened wasn't all bad um and and the child in their innocence and ignorance misinterpreted it so we can look at that who in your past has been trustworthy who in your present is trustworthy again looking at trying to hone down that list of who are the people that you think you might be able to form a supportive relationship with what do you do to yourself that is unsafe or dishonest? And I really like this question because a lot of behaviors that we do to ourselves, we learn from having people do them to us. So asking themselves what they're doing to basically compound their fear of abandonment um, and be mistrustful is important. How does your distrust impact your current relationships? Are you always suspicious? Are, Are you always on the lookout? Are you always, you know, trying to get your significant other's cell phone and look to see who he or she has texted or whatever. And what could you do differently? So we want to help them start forming this idea about what a healthy relationship looks like. Emotional deprivation, the whole I don't get the love I need and nobody understands me. So the first question is, what does it look like when someone understands you and meets your needs? If you had the perfect best friend that understood you and met your needs, What would that look like? How would that be different than what you have now? Because a lot of times I have found, and I, you know, I don't have any statistics on it, but a a lot of the clients that I've worked with don't even really know what they need. They want somebody to be there to make them feel better. Um, Well, how do you do that? What is it exactly that you're wanting from someone? So we need to narrow it down. Do you just want somebody to be there to sit with you? Do you want somebody to talk with you, problem solve, do something for you? And... Have you communicated this to people? A lot of our clients with abandonment fears don't have good assertiveness skills because they don't want to push anybody away. Um, So they don't ask for what 
they feel they need or want, then they get resentful because they don't get what they need and want. So we identify what is it that they need or they feel they need, how they can communicate that, and how they might get those needs met. Who in the past failed to meet your needs emotionally, and how can you deal with that now? So, you know, maybe caregiver was very emotionally unavailable and just wasn't there when whenever things went wrong, they just told you to suck it up and go, go do your thing. All right. Well, the past is past, and they may not have been able to do any better or may not have chosen to do any better. How is that affecting you in the present, and what can you do to integrate that now? to deal with the anger and the frustration about that. Likewise, who in the past has understood you and who in your present understands and cares about you? Not that they always meet your needs or totally understands you, but who has a little bit better of an inkling? And how can you start better understanding yourself and taking care of you? This goes back to those vulnerabilities. You know, typically when we have high vulnerability levels, we're going to feel more uneasy and unsure and needy, if you will. So there's more of a need for support, social support, which highlights the fears of abandonment. So we want to say, what can you do to start taking better care of yourself, to start trusting yourself, to start accepting yourself, so you can develop and ask for what you need? Defectiveness. If people knew me, they'd reject me. Okay. I'm not going to tell you you're right or wrong. That is your opinion. Um, how will you know when you're accepted or acceptable? The other question that you can do use from the challenging questions worksheet is, what is your evidence for and against this? This sounds like emotion-based reasoning. You feel like if people knew you, they would reject you. But what is your evidence that if they actually did? So give me concrete examples of people who got to know you and rejected you. Then we can start looking at, were they rejecting you or was there something else going on? Are you just focusing on one part of the situation? Who in the past made you feel defective and how can you silence those old tapes? Because a lot of times, especially children with abandonment fears and issues who already don't feel very good about themselves, what messages do they hear that they remember? The ones that fit with their current self-concept and those are the negative ones. So they re remembered the slights. They've remembered all the things that were hurtful. So how can we help them silence those old tapes and silence the internal critic? Look again at who in your past has been accepting and supportive. Maybe not over the long haul, but even in short bursts. You know, who did you kind of like to hang around or feel was a kind of decent person? Who's, who in your present do you have? And how can you start accepting yourself? And I have my clients keep a list of um, self-deprecating thoughts, and they counter those each day. I also have them keep a self-esteem journal, you know, good things that they did. And they roll their eyes when I ask them to do this, and I don't blame them. I rolled my eyes when I learned this activity, too. But it's helpful to go, be able to go back and look over um, your list. And I have them add, depending on the person, one to three things each day that either they did that were nice, that was, they did that was good, or things that are just good about them. Failure. I don't measure up. I'm not able to succeed. Okay. You know, we can also look at the evidence for and against this, but we also want to look, look at um, what does it look like to you to be successful? 
what success means to me and what success means to my best friend, two different things, very different things. Um, so I need to know what that looks like before we can start talking about whether you measure up. And maybe you don't measure up to your idea of success right now. So how can you start moving in that direction or what needs to change? What in your past made you feel like a failure? And I would encourage them to look at the internal attribution here. They're saying they were a failure. Well, they may have failed at something, but does it mean that they as a whole person are a failure? What have you succeeded at in the past? What are you good at in the present? And on our parts, it's important to pay attention to minimization, knowing that people with low self-esteem um, and sometimes depressive issues tend to minimize the positive and maximize the negative. So, you know, anything that goes right, anybody could have done that. A trained monkey could have done that. But if something goes wrong, you know, I should have been able to do better. So we want to address the minimization behaviors. What does being successful mean in terms of your relationship with others? So we have success up here, whatever they define that as. But then we talk about what does that mean in terms of your relationship with others? Can you not get in a relationship until you're successful? Or does part of success involve healthy relationships? Who are three successful people you know and what makes them successful? Um, the success equal happiness and the kicker. What do your kids need to do to be successful in life? And you can ask all of these, any of these. These can be questions that you put up on the board in group and, you know, one or more of them, and have people kind of throw out their own ideas to get an idea of, or to help people get an idea about the differences in definitions of success and the differences in the definition they hold for success for themselves versus the rest of the world. Usually, people hold themselves to a much higher standard than anybody else, which means they're going to be more likely to fail. So triggering relationships. Um, sometimes people get into them. There's the abandon, abandoner who's unpredictable, unstable, and unavailable. So the person is constantly chasing them. And remember, a lot of times we recreate relationships from our past. Um, and you can do a whole class on the potential reasons, subconscious reasons for doing that. But we're just going to skate on through this right now. The abuser, emotionally or physically, who's untrustworthy and unsafe. The depriver, who is detached and withholding. The devastator, is re judgmental, rejecting, and critical. And the critic, who is critical and narcissistic. So I want to have them look at their current relationships and identify any of the characteristics or any of the people they have relation relationships with that have these characteristics, to be aware of them. Then I want them to look at how they exhibit these behaviors. Excuse me. So look at how they exhibit these behaviors in relationships, because a lot of times they're mimicking things they learned in the past. In what ways are these present in your current relationships, any of these characteristics? And in what ways were these present in your primary caregiver relationships? So we're going to go back and look and say, you know, we might be repeating the past, so how can we break the cycle? Behavioral triggers, abandonment and mistrust. If there's a change in someone else's behavior or if they're not getting constant reassurance or if the other person's relationships, their other friends, their other Facebook friends, whatever, their coworkers feel threatening or if they're hypervigilant to rejection and disconnection. 
So these are ones, if they're having difficulty identifying characteristics of past relationships, I might throw out there. Um, questions for clients. How has this behavior, whatever it is, threatened you in the past? You know, what situations has this happened? It made you feel threatened. How many times was it bad mojo versus you got upset about something that never materialized? What are some alternate explanations? So if there's a change in your, your significant other's behavior, does it always mean they're going to abandon you? What are some alternate explanations? And what would be a helpful reaction to these behaviors right now? So if that happens... What is your automatic reaction? And generally, that's an unhelpful one. And okay, so what do you think would be an, a different way of approaching it that might be more helpful? Defectiveness and failure schemas can be triggered by criticism, even constructive criticism, unexplained time apart, absence or inconsistent reassurance, and failure. So again, we're Reassurance and unexplained time apart or changes in behavior come up in both of these. So the person's constantly looking for those conditions of worth. How has this threatened you in the past? What are alternate explanations? And what would be a helpful reaction to these behaviors now? So envisioning activity for clients. And this is a fun one to do in group. Um, what does a healthy relationship look like? And a lot of times I'll just start with that on the board and not have any of this other stuff. And let them go where they will go. Then we start talking about presence versus abandonment. Do you have to be constantly present for it to not mean abandonment? So we want to look at healthy boundaries and time apart and breathing room. Acceptance versus rejection. And acceptance for, of the person versus rejection of the person or acceptance of the person and rejection of behaviors because we all you know whether it's a roommate or a child or whatever we can love somebody but really not like some of their behaviors so we want to help them start differentiating rejection of a behavior versus themselves emotional support and compassion versus emotional unavailability how much emotional support do you need in a healthy relationship and what does that look like um, Trustworthiness versus untrustworthiness. I talk a lot about spidey senses, but our clients have to learn how to trust their own spidey senses and, and stuff before they can trust how what their spidey senses are telling them about other people. But we do want to work on that. What does it look like when somebody's trustworthy? And safe versus harmful. And I'll go back to untrustworthiness. You'll get a lot of stuff that comes up here because a lot of our clients have been in relationships with untrustworthy people. So there's a lot of triggers there that we may need to help clients work through. So how can you create this relationship with yourself where you're present, you're accepting, you're emotionally available, trustworthy, and safe? What does that look like? And how can you create this relationship with others? Mindfulness questions, because they've been on autopilot for so long, because this has likely been a pattern of behavior that's developed since they were knee-high to a grasshopper, it's going to be important for clients to start becoming mindful about what might be triggering them and when they start getting anxious instead of going from, you know, trigger to reaction. What am I feeling? What's triggering it? Am I safe emotionally and physically? If not, what do I need to do? Is this bringing up something from the past? How is this situation different? How am I different? Because remember I said stuff that was really threatening to a two-year-old 
isn't going to be near as threatening to a 22 year old who can make their own meals and stuff. It may be devastating, but it is not necessarily threatening in the same way. And how can I silence my inner critic? Many times it may be something that was triggered. You're hearing negative messages from the past, which fuels the anxiety, and you're almost reliving the, the past situation in the present. And what would be a helpful reaction that moves you towards your goal of healthy relationships and success, however you define it, and moves you towards a positive emotional experience? Because sometimes you just can't fix or change something. So it's getting angry, getting anxious, etc. going to help the situation. Is it worth that energy and turmoil? What can move you towards acceptance, happiness, contentment, yada, yada? In this situation but encourage people to use this frequently throughout the day so even if like I said even if it's something like you texted somebody and they didn't text back right away and you start getting that little anxiety bug or anger bug in the in the pit of your stomach stop pause and do a mindfulness check to see if you can figure out what's going on because once you identify the triggers you can start addressing them or just tolerating the distress until the urge passes core beliefs about self others and relationships are formed in early life due to children's lack of knowledge other experiences and primitive cognitive abilities these core beliefs are often dichotomous all or nothing core beliefs can be formed around events and experiences outside of conscious memory which is important to know because I mean some things happened before you may be able to remember maybe you don't remember anything before you were five or six but stuff happened when you were two or three that had some sort of an effect on you identifying and being mindful of abandonment triggers in the present can help people choose alternate more helpful ways of responding and it's a process it's you know with anything Breaking a long-standing habitual way of acting, reacting, it's a process. DBT skills are really helpful, um, and interpersonal effectiveness, you know, can go be added on after the distress tolerance skills. But it's important to help clients start to understand where this is coming from, because a lot of times that's the mystery to them. They don't understand why they feel like they have to cling, or why they feel like as soon as they get in a relationship, they're they're completely emotionally enmeshed so we want to help them understand where that's coming from so they can start to choose how they want to address it um let's see somebody shared an article that was um about love in the time of mass incarceration and um let's see maybe i can get that to come up that's interesting prison dating sites who knew um <clears throat> i have not read the article yet but it start talking about people needing some sort of connection i would i would guess so i will add that to your resources section if you want to go and take a look at that article if you enjoy this podcast please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on youtube you can attend and participate in our live webinars with dr snipes by subscribing at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox this episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. Use coupon code counselor toolbox to get a 20% discount off your order this month.